some difficulty that I have is preaching. One of the difficult things that I have with preaching is that I have to stop every week. <laughs> in other words, I only have 30 minutes and then I dump it. And then I try to pick it up and I pick it up next week and I pick it up next week. Um, just to let you know what's going on in my mind is, is these are all building towards something. Uh, so as we're, as we're looking at every single sermon is, is specific with the chapter, but it's also consistently building. It's consistently building. Just to let you know that we've been building under the book of Saul. Uh, of trying to understand what is in Saul's heart. If you look at chapters 13, 14, and 15, why are they written? Why are they there? Why are they taking place? What's the, what's, the, what's the author's intent in regards to where they're written? What they're doing is it's given a revelation of who Saul is. His heart is coming to the surface so we can sit there and we can evaluate it. Three weeks ago, we started this series, and when we started this, this, this piece of a revelation of Saul's heart, we see the first day that there's words of Samuel that God has taken the kingship from you. But that was just mentioned <laughs> three weeks ago at the first part of those three chapters. But then chap- the next chapter, then the next chapter, the next chapter, after that mentioning, starts to build on something and this morning, you're going to see the rejection of Saul. Not because he did one thing in chapter 15, but because of who he is and what has taken place inside of his heart going through 13, 14, and 15. So all this is being built up, and we only have two more sermons left in Saul. We have this morning, and then next week we have um, the last one. To obey is better than sacrifice, is what it is. Where everything kind of breaks loose, and we see a reaction of God, that I am done with this, and I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And then we're going to get the display of what that person looks like. We get that display for about, two, for about a year and a half, once we start getting into David. But Saul is essential in this story, because it sets up the story of what a person does not look like after God's own heart. Before we get the person of what God does look like after his own heart. So this morning, Saul is going to be rejected. But let's just do a review really fast all the way through the last three weeks of preaching through those three chapters. Who is Saul? Saul believed that his way would be a way to be saved. I don't want to go into detail because I'd go off another, the whole other sermon that was already preached. Believed that... His way would be a way. There's only one way you're saved. It's God's way. Listen to him and follow those instructions. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's it. You can see where Saul's foundation at. You can see where Saul's heart's at. You see where Saul's motive's at, just even if this comes up to the surface. Saul believed that he could get God's saving power the way he wanted to get God's saving power. That's who Saul was. It came out. His heart was revealed. In chapter 13. And then I've been, we've been mixing them together in regards to, as we're observing Saul, we should be observing us. Because Saul was rejected. And next week we're really going to go into it in regards to, I don't want to be rejected. Well, why was Saul rejected? Because his heart was coming on display and it was not a man after God's own heart. But then we could ask the question, what about me? So we put these points in there you can observe where a man stands by observing 
what we fear. Man meaning mankind. You can observe where you stand by what you fear. But as we're going through that series, you can observe where Saul stood by observing what he feared. You can locate Saul's home by observing what he holds on to. You can see Saul's power by observing his mission. You can see the extent of Saul's pride by seeing where he gives credit. Same with us. You can identify Saul's priorities by watching his actions, and you can see Saul's love by watching where he is loyal. And as we're looking at Saul's life, as we read scripture every time, it should give a reflection of ours. This is where Saul stood with God. And when we read that story, we ask the question, where do I stand with God? Today's going to be rejected in chapter 15. Let's walk through the story and let's continue to build on what Saul's heart looks like. God anointed Saul, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message of the Lord. This chapter, Saul, God wants to put everything into perspective. You are king because I put you there. That's what he's trying to say before he's getting into anything else. You are a king and you are in that position because I put you there. And I put you there for a purpose. I put you there for a reason. That purpose is not you, and the reason is not you. The reason's mine. That's what this verse is telling us. Before we even walk into the chapter, God has taken the scene. You exist for a reason. You exist for a purpose. You are the king in a position, but that position is not your position. It's my position for the purpose that I want to accomplish through you. God wants to make it very clear before this story continues to unfold. God instructs Saul to do the work he anointed him to do. And what is that work? This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites. Totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, but put them to death. Put the death, men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Now when you look at this, you look at Amalekites and you ask the question, well, who are the Amalekites? Amalek was the son of Esau. And, uh, and then his descendants was um, the Amalekites. These were the people. They uh, were the first people known to attack the Israelites. And then they just never stopped attacking them. You can see it all the way through. They despised the Jews and consistently attacked, 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 attacked. They were brutal. They were relentless. They were vicious. And they were sick. And they would not, they would not stop. All the way from Moses' time. All the way up. They committed genocides. They committed atrocities. They were martyrs. They were vicious individuals. So vicious that God even told Moses a prophecy in Exodus 17... That one day I'm just gonna, they're just gonna be gone. I'm just taking them out. And this is found in 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is years before this story of Saul, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So there's a prophecy that's already taken place. God says one day they will be taken care of. And there will be a king, and one day I'll ask the king to take care of him. And that king 
is Saul. But God sent Saul to complete the mission of justice to the Malachites. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them up at Teleum. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in in the ravine. Then he said to the Canaanites, go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur in the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul, the army, spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the cattle, the fat of the calves, and the lambs. Everything that was good, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. When you go to war, you go for two different reasons. There's war in the Bible, consistent war in the Bible. And there's consistent war in history. And there's two things that are motivating you to go to war. Two things that are driving a person, uh, an army to go to war. And what they are is their justice or imperialism are the two things. Justice is that you go to war because it is the right thing to do. You can't read the Bible and say, it's not. You can't look at this world and say, it's not. Sex trafficking has taken place rampant across America. Is it evil and sick and twisted for us not to go to war with it? Yes. Would it be the wrong thing for us to ignore it? The answer is is yes. We must go to war. And the reason why we must go to war with the sex trafficking that has taken place is because victims are being used and being destroyed in this sinful world that we live in. And God is a God of justice and he calls a church to go to war with it. He calls our country to go to war with it. He calls our government to go to war with it for the purpose of getting rid of it. For the purpose of justice. World War II. You see it in history. You see... The Nazis going after the Jews. And the concentration camps have taken place. And the land that was stolen. You see that aggressive move. And you also see in history that we stood back for quite a while until Pearl Harbor. But what happens when you look at the war and as it's taken place? And as it's taken place, do you enter the war as a result of justice, the power, the hand of God? As imperialism has taken place with them? Or what do you do? Do you respond? Would there be more atrocities and more death by stepping out of the war or rather going into the war? That would be a question. When you look at war, God wants us to go to war for purpose of justice. So when you do go into war, if we go into war, you do it right. You do it correct. You do it in the mind of God. You look at um, the war right now, regards to Israel, Hamas. And when you, you see that, everybody's got this tension. Okay, what's taking place? What, what's going on? Oh, it's, it's, it's bad on this side. It's, it's ugly on this side because war is about as ugly as you can possibly imagine. But there's only two reasons you go to war justice or 
imperialism. When you look at Hamas and watch what they did, do you just let it go? Just questions, the hard questions the government has to ask, the government has to answer. And will atrocities build if it takes place? Or do you look at Hamas and say, Hamas has got to go for the purpose of justice because it is the right thing to do. And when I'm saying this, it's like, look at the motives on both sides. Justice or imperialism? I keep using this word imperialism. You're asking, well, what is this word imperialism? Because you go to war for justice, but what is this word imperialism? Imperialism is you go to war to enrich yourselves. Now, we don't like to say that very loud, but there is a motive that's inside of us, all of us. That if, you know, if war does take place, there will be prosperity, there will be an increase in land, and it is a motivating factor for so many countries to go to war. Imperialism. I go to enrich myself, I go to get land, I go to get money, I go to get fuel, I go to get resources, I go to get, I go to get slaves. Two, justice, I go to war for justice, or I go for imperialism. Two different motives that are taking place inside of every country that has gone to war. So when we're looking at war happening, you've got to ask the question, what is it? Is it justice or is it imperialism? It has to come out to answer, to answer those words. Because we know the Bible says there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. That's what the, the Bible says. And the reason why the Bible says it is because there's more death without war than not in some different areas as we're living in this world, cruel and sick of sin. So we'll ask you the question, is Saul going into this war for the purpose of justice? What God told you to do is I want to commit justice, give justice to the Malachites, or is he going in for imperialism for the purpose of enriching himself? There's one verse in there that, uh, that all of us respond to, including, including me. And, and the response is, I want you to take out the women, I want you to take out the children. I'm just going to have to say, I want you to take out the women, I want you to take out the children, and I want the Amalekites completely gone. So looking at that statement, I, I just want to say that I believe that command would never be given to this day by God. That command would never be given this day by God to take out the women and to take out the children. You need to look at back in these days, the Bible days. The command was given by God to take out the women and the children. Because if you take out the men, the women and the children die a slow death of starvation. Or you take out the men, the women and the children become your slaves and you have enriched yourself. You have enriched yourself. God gives Saul a direction. I want you to go and have justice and take them all out. My command, I'm God, I am sovereign, I'm king, I am Lord, and this is your command. Do not go after it for imperialism whatsoever. Go after it because I asked you to go after it. Go after it because I want people to live. That's why I want you to go after it. What did Saul do? Did he administer justice? Or did he go after imperialism? 
in 8, it says, he took Agog, king of the Malachites, alive. I'm going to keep the king alive. Why do you keep the king alive? Because if you keep the king alive, you are now what? The king of the kings. I keep Agog alive so everybody will see my power, my strengths, and who I am and what I defeated. Is Saul in this war for God or is Saul in this world for his image and himself? Is Saul doing justice or is he doing an act of imperialism in verse 8? And then all his people, and he totally destroyed with the sword, but Saul and the army spared Agag, the best of the sheep. It says the best of the sheep. Why is it saying the best of the sheep? I'm doing it for wealth. The best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lamb, and everything that was good. You can see the Bible communicate Saul's motive behind what he's doing. It's not justice what God asked him to do. It's imperialism. I'm going to war for the purpose of enriching myself. These were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, he destroyed, but everything that was good, beautiful, and powerful, he what? He ended up keeping. Saul did not administer justice. Saul adopted the values of the same nations that he was instructed to God by destroying them. He adopted the same values. The reason why I go is because I want to be rich. The reason why I go is because I want slaves. The reason why I go is because I want more. God is grieved that he made Saul king. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made you king, Saul king. Because he turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up. He went to meet Saul. But he, told, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. He set up a monument in his own honor. Why is Saul in war? He's not even given the credit to God. And he has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Pride is coming to the surface of his life. When Samuel reached him, Saul, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. <laughs> he is now boasting before Samuel. See, look what I have done. I am obeying the Lord. As if God doesn't even see what he has done underneath the surface. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of the cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. These soldiers were on a mission, God, that were not on your mission. They are the one that spared the sheep, the cattle, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But don't worry, God, they're not doing it for themselves. They're stealing stuff and not listening to you for the purpose of glorifying you. See how he's speaking? Ask the question, who is this God? Samuel said, or 13, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Malachites. He's blaming others. They spared the best of the sheep, the cattle, the sacrifice to God, though you totally destroyed the rest. He's even lying to God in this process. And Samuel responds, stop. Samuel said to Saul, 
Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. You can see how relaxed he is. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord is the one who anointed you king over Israel for his purpose, for his mission, for his glory, for his power, for his namesake, not yours. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy the wicked people, the Malachites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you not pounce? Why did you pounce and plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Why did you adapt the mission of the person you're supposed to conquer? Why did you adapt the morals of the mission of the person you're supposed to conquer? Look at verse 17. Saul made a monument. I'm sorry, it's not verse 17, it's verse 12. Saul made a monument for himself. The war was about him. The glory is about him and the mission was about him. Verse 17. Although you were once small in your own eyes, Saul, I, God, made you big. What's he saying? You were once small in your own eyes. The Lord made you great. Why do you continue to make yourself great in the position that I placed you there in the first place? Who's your God, Saul? Who's your God? What is is your heart anchored to, Saul? Saul was rejected as king in verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on a mission the Lord has assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle again from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. It brings up again, God, we're doing this all for you. We kept all the money for you. We kept all the wealth for you. We kept all the power for you. It's not correct. They're keeping it from themselves as they're consistently lying to God. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and the arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Next week we're going to only have two verses. We're going to do verse 22 in verse 23. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. But I do want to bring up a couple words. Sin of divination. What is divination? Divination is to be inspired by a God. It's to be inspired by a God, small g. The rebellion is like the sin. If you rebel, you are being inspired by a God, little G, not big G, not king of kings, not lord of lords. You're being inspired by a God. What is this God? What is this God? The money, is it power? Is it him? Is it position? Is it, is it fame? It doesn't say what his God is, but it's everything but the king of kings and lord of lords. He's given his heart to something else. God is saying you are inspired by a God and the God's not me. You're being inspired by God, and the God is not me. And then the next statement that says, and your arrogance like the evil of idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is the worship of another God rather than God. And it says, your pride and arrogance is making a statement that you are laying homage, glory, 
power and beauty to somebody else besides me. It's all your heart's off. You have another king. You have another lord. You have another master. You have another ruler. It's not me. So Saul makes an apology. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And we look at that and say, boy, what a humble guy. He's asking for an apology. But let me ask you a question. Who's he asking the apology from? He's asking to be pardoned. But who is he asking to be pardoned from? Look at it again. Then Saul said to who? Samuel. <laughs> We're going to go to another person. This is going to be next year, King David, and he sins. And when he sins, he comes into confession. He says, to God and God alone have I committed my sin. Well, he isn't even addressing God. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, Samuel. I have violated the Lord's commandments and instructions. And then he gives the reason why. And the reason why is because I was afraid of the people. And so I gave them, gave in to them. (laughs) He gives his confession to Samuel. And the reason why his confession is because I'm afraid of the people, meaning, just to reword that, the people are my Lord. The people are what I live for. The people are what I need to impress. As Christians, we are supposed to have an audience of one. And who is it? God. An audience of all the people. Here, we're not looking at an audience of one. Saul's not looking at an audience of one. He's looking at an audience of all the people. And I was not going to please the people if I did what you want, God. Therefore, I've got to choose. Which one's my Lord? I was afraid of the people. He continues. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. I beg you, Samuel, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of his hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to the one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who has the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that you should change his mind. Saul then backpedals. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. (laughs) His confession comes out again. I have sinned, but please don't make me look bad, Samuel. (laughs) Where's his king? Where's his God? I have sinned, but please don't make me look bad inside of the people that I'm supposed to be ruler of, because if they look at me as somebody that looks bad, then my image is not going to be as strong as it needs to be. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him, and confidently thinking, confidently thinking, surely the bitterness of death has passed. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among the women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah. But Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul until the day of Samuel died. 
he did not see, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. When you look at this chapter, a, a lot is going on. But as we're seeing this, a lot is going on. I just want to define a couple words. Let's define the word God. What does the word God mean? It means supreme king. What does the Lord, uh, the king mean? It means ruler. What does the word Lord mean? It means master. God is a king of kings and Lord of lords. The one who left heaven came to earth and lived a perfect life, a life that we could not live, and went to die the death that we should have died for the purpose of us being saved. He was buried and rose again three days later. And we look at him as believers, as our king of kings and our lord of lords, as our God. The supreme ruler, he's a king. The complete ruler, he's a lord and complete master. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then what? Saved under his beautiful authority. Saved under his beautiful grace. Adopted into the family where you have a new king, you have a new master, and you have a new Lord. And it is what carries you, it is what drives you, it is what sends you what Christ has done for us as we adopted him as king of kings and lord of lords. But as we're looking at this old story in the Old Testament, you see Saul's heart arise. It's not embracing God. It's embracing something else. Number one, you can weigh Saul's strength by evaluating his self-control. Asking the question to us as well. You can weigh my strength by evaluating my self-control. If God says do something and you do not do it, you are telling God that you have another master. (laughs) If God says, I put you in this position and I want you to do it, and you don't do it, you're telling God you have another master. Do not lust. If you lust, what are you doing? You're submitting to a new master. You're submitting to a new king. You're submitting to a new Lord. This is what I'm going to give myself to is that. Do not have greed. Do not have malice. Do not have hate. Do not have sexual sin. All these things God is saying, I'm the king. I'm God. I'm your ruler. I'm Lord. I'm your master. And I want absolutely what is best for you. And then all of a sudden we live life. And as we live life, we can do the same thing we're doing with Saul. We can evaluate our heart, come to the surface to see who our master really is. To see who our king really is. Saul's master came alive in 1 Samuel verse 9. But Saul and his army spared Agog and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat of the calves and the lamb and everything that was good. Who's his master in that passage? His master's money, his master's wealth, his master's greed, his master's power, his master is fame. He is being ruled because we're all being ruled, but he's not being ruled by the king of kings and lord of lords. Being ruled by another God. We'll talk more about that next week. But he's being ruled by another God. So as we're evaluating Saul, what should we do about it? Better A, be a person of power, 
have self-control, meaning don't let anything else master you but God. Fight anything that chooses to master you because everything on this planet is going to master you and want to master you. But if scripture says it, let God do it and not anything else. What does a powerful person look like according to the Bible? Those who can control his tongue. <laughs> That's what a powerful person looks like. What does a powerful look like, person look like in the Bible? Those who can control his anger, their anger. That's what power looks like. It's called self-control. Those who can control their greed, those who can control their lust, those that control their pride. That's what power looks like in Scripture. We see that Saul did not have it. Number two, you can observe a man, Saul's Lord, by watching who he worships. Worship show adoration. Adore is the word of looking at adoration. The one you adore, you give the glory to, you give your energy to, you give your time to, you give your passion to, you give just about everything to the one that you adore and we all adore something. God wants the seat. God wants the seat. He did not have Saul's seat. Saul has gone to Carmel. There he sat, set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Who did he adore? Worshiping one person. And this person is this person is himself. This is the one that I lay my life down for. This is the one I do things for. This is the one that I commit things for. Do it for me. Do not fall in that trap. Don't let anything lord over you. Worship God alone. Worship money and you'll never feel like you have enough. Worship appearance and your body will always feel ugly. Worship power and you will always feel weak. Worship intelligence and you will always feel dumb. And the reason why is because what we worship is identifying ourselves for who we are. That's why we worship them. That's why we worship them. So when we're worshiping money, we're trying to identify ourselves who we are. But the problem is, is that what if you go bankrupt? And you just lost yourself. If you worship your intellect, what if your mind goes, which we're all going to get old and our minds are going to go? You just lost yourself. What if you worship your appearance and make that the thing that you lay homage to? If you lose your appearance, who goes? You go with it. God wants a seat of the center of worship for a reason is because when you lose everything, which everybody in this room will, including me, and it is the day I die, you still have something. You still have him. That's why he's demanding worship. He says, this is who you are. You are a child of God. And therefore, if you have everything, you still got the most golden thing, which is being the child of God. But if you have nothing, you still have the most golden thing you could possibly ever have, and that is being a child of God. That's why we get the commandment. Do not let anything lord over you. Worship God alone. Number three, you can see what is in Saul's heart by watching his motives. You can see what is in your heart 
by watching your motives. But we see Saul's heart on display in verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people before Israel. I'm going to confess that I did something wrong, but there's a motive. The motive is that I need to be honored. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. First Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, Do the Lord, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and heat is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance is evil, like the evil of idolatry. Letter A. The answer to the question of why you do what you do is more important to God than doing it. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. In fact, that's going to be the drive of the sermon next week, so I'm not going to go into it. But you love because you've been loved. You give because you've been given. And you lay down your life because Christ has laid down your life for us. That should be our motive in everything. Number four, you can observe the formation of Saul's will by understanding what he follows. Let's watch Samuel's confession. Here's Samuel's confession in verse 20. But I did obey the Lord. Saul said, I went on the mission the Lord has assigned me to do. Let me reword that. Look at what I've done for you. Does my good outweigh the bad? That's what that says. That's what we say often in our confession. God, doesn't my good outweigh the bad? Look what I've done for you. It's not obedience. Look at the other verse in this confession. The soldiers took sheep and Cattle from the plunder. Let me reword that. Everyone else is doing it. (laughs) How come I can't do it? Uh, Next confession. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice the Lord your God. God, this seems like it's the sensible thing to do. You see who's the king of his life? You see who's the Lord of his life? It's coming out. Even in the process of his confession. It's not a confession like Paul. Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I need to do? Oh, wretched man I am. But thanks be to God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's my king as a result of what he's done for me. Next confession. Soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. God, I did it for you. (laughs) Uh, I know it wasn't the right thing to do, and I know it's not the thing that you told me to do, but relax a little bit, God. I was doing it all for you. Letter A. Following anything in contradiction to God's will is the wrong will. People ask um, me often where I stand in different positions. You know, where do you stand in the topic of gay marriage? Uh, where do you stand in the topic um, of abortion? And my answer to all that is I stand where God stands. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's my answer. You know, what does the Bible say about it? If God says it, that's where I stand. And that's where all of us should be. 
I stand where God stands. Therefore, what does God say? Because I personally am in a position that God puts me in. You personally are in a position that God has put you in. You personally have not been created for your will. You personally have been created for the will of God. Your purpose, your mission, your drive, your direction is not supposed to be yours. It's supposed to be God's. So when we look at the word of God and the God says, do this, we don't have to question it. We don't have to get the government to change its laws so it will fit with us. We don't have to even argue with it. All we have to do is mold to it. Just mold to it. God, you said it. Therefore, I'm going to do it. God said to Saul, I put you in this position for a purpose. Do the purpose I put you into the position for. And if you're going to do it, you need to listen to me. You need to listen to me. Don't listen to your own heart. Oh, by all means, don't listen to your own heart. Don't listen to your own desires. By all means, don't listen to your own desires. Just listen to me. And Saul did not. Do we? God, we look at Saul's story and it is, it is a sad story. But we thank you that we have it today. Because in it, God, we see what's important to you. In this story, God, we see what's important to you. Your word, your will, your direction, your position, your power, your glory. I just pray, God, that we'd be a people that adapt to that, not ours. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.